You can take your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of James. We'll be in the fourth chapter primarily, but we're going to take a look at the whole book today as well. I'm thankful you're here today. I'm thankful for this opportunity to bring the word to you, and I'm hopeful that God will work today. I'm confident he will, really. His words are powerful. They change us. And I, I hope that you'll give them the kind of attention today that they deserve. So over the last many weeks, we've been working through the book of James as a church, and today we come to the last text in the fourth chapter, James four eleven to 17. This would be uh, in my view, the conclusion to the main body of this letter uh, that James wrote. If you look at James 4.17, you'll see this is kind of a concluding type of verse. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. That sounds pretty James-ish, if you will, if you've been listening to the series. It's kind of like how the introduction to the book ended. Uh, the introduction, if you go to the end of chapter 1, towards the end of chapter 1, you remember how James talks about not being hearers only of the word, but also being doers of the word. And this is a very similar idea to that. And so we've been looking through the book. We come now to the last part of the body of the letter. But what I thought, because we're in this situation, we've also been having different speakers the text before us is a little bit shorter maybe than some of the other texts. I wanted to take some time at the beginning to try to put maybe the whole book together a little bit more for us. Maybe just to solidify a few things in your mind. Maybe see some connections in the book just as a whole now that we've gone through uh, getting through the fourth chapter. And so I want you to look at James 1. And I just want to walk you through a little bit of the book. And, and really my goal is to help solidify things in your mind. But also to prepare us for the text. Uh, today. So as you look at the book of James as a whole, it opens with this uh, call to respond rightly to trials. And you see that in James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And, and really, that focus on trials and how we respond to trials carries through most of uh, the first chapter. If you look down to like James 1, uh, 13, See, that James 1, 1 to 12 is, is really about the right way to respond to trials. And then James 1, 13, uh, James turns and says, let, let no one say when he's undergoing a test, undergoing a trial, I'm being tempted by God, like God's out to get me in this. God is never going to try to get you to stumble or fall. God is good. He gives good gifts. He gives only good gifts. Every good gift you have is from him. He even gave us the greatest gift, which is the new birth. If you look at James 1, 18, of his own will, of God's own free will, God gave you the new birth so that you could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He gave you that birth through the word of truth, through the gospel. God gives us new life. It's his greatest gift. That connection between the word of truth is what James picks up in James 1.19 to, to the end of chapter 1 almost when he says, so you need to continue to be hearers of this word. You need to seek this word. You need to be committed to do this word. This is kind of the introduction to James. But then you get to James one twenty six to 27. And this text has been mentioned several times, and I want to draw your attention to it again because these are, this is really like the thematic 
verses in the whole book. James one twenty six and 27, James says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. It's to visit or to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world. James, the book as a whole, is a call to authentic Christianity. Not a kind of fake Christianity. Not, a Christianity that's not a sham. A, a Christianity that's a genuine, authentic. He gives three characteristics of that kind of Christianity. Genuine Christianity, authentic Christianity, is, is known by the way that you speak. By the, the way that you bridle your tongue. It's known by the way that you treat needy people who can't give you anything back. By caring for people like widows and orphans, which for James in that day, I mean, that's like the category of people that can't give you anything back. And the way that you relate to the world. Whether you have affection for the world, whether you're stained by the world and tainted by the world, or whether you're pure. This, these are the marks of authentic Christianity, and throughout the entire body of the book of James, those things from James 1, 26 and 27 are the driving themes of the whole body of the letter. If you look at James chapter 2, like verses 1 to 13, it's all about how we treat people when they come into our assembly, specifically how we treat the poor, how we show compassion to the needy. James concludes that section really in James two twelve to 13. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. You see, genuine Christianity is demonstrated by the kind of mercy we show to the people who come in here who can't really give us anything. You go to James 2, 14 to 26. It goes back to the theme of authenticity, authentic faith, the kind of faith that actually demonstrates itself in deeds of mercy. Because what good is it if someone comes into your life who's needy and you tell them, I hope it goes well for you, but you don't do anything to help them? What kind of Christianity is that? What kind of faith is that? That's the kind of faith that can't save. It's not genuine faith. That's not genuine Christianity. You go into James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And what does James point to? He spends the whole time talking about the tongue, about speech, because authentic Christianity is demonstrated by the way that you bridle the tongue. But what you find out in James 3, 1 to 12, it's a little bit difficult to bridle the tongue. It's like James says, go tame your tongue. And by the way, no one's ever been able to do that. And by the way, that's a sign. If you bridle your tongue, that's a sign that you're a Christian. But nobody's ever been able to do that. And there's some tension in the book. Say, well, how is that possible? And, and James begins to point you to the hope. Because in a lot of the book, it's like he just keeps giving all of these instructions and we don't necessarily see, well, what do we, how, how do I do that? What do I do? But James begins maybe to point you to the hope, which is found in the wisdom of God. That God can impart wisdom to you. He can give you wisdom from above one of his gracious gifts and that can shape and reshape your soul so that you're able to be impartial because we tend towards partiality, so that you're able to be merciful because we don't naturally show mercy to the people who aren't going to give us something back. It can even help you in respect to the tongue. 
But then last week, you come to James chapter 4, verse, verses 1 to 3, and James raises some more questions about why it is that there are problems among people. How is it that two believers could have problems with each other? That can't happen, right? I mean, and of course, I mean, these people, many of these people are going through trials. Of course, in the midst of a trial, what are believers going to do? They're going to cling to each other, right? They're going to be more prone to be together, unified. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. James says, where do wars and fights come from? Among you. Isn't it this? Don't they come from the passions that are at war within you? You want what you want, I want what I want, and when we don't get it, there are problems. And when we want something more than what we want, than we want God or His will for us, what do we call that? That is an idol. And idolatry is spiritual adultery. You look at what James says in James 4, verse 4. You adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world, to give your affection to the world, see that theme of worldliness from James 1, 26 and 27, everything comes back in the body of the letter. Don't you realize that to give your affection for the world is to make yourself an enemy of God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures speak for no purpose when they say, that God yearns jealously for you, for your affection. Do you think the scriptures throughout the Old Testament speak of God's jealousy for no reason? When God says, I want all of your affection, all of the time. Do you think that God is less jealous for his people's affection today than he was in the Old Testament when all of those scriptures talked about his jealousy God is no less jealous for the affections of his people today. But this is where I think in James, you come to this, book, to this point in the book and, and you've been feeling it the whole time. You've been feeling, I just don't know how I can possibly do this. I can't even, I can't bridle my tongue. I, I don't tend to show compassion. I am unable to practice authentic Christianity. And then James brings you to this point where James basically says, you know what God wants from you? He wants all that you are all of the time. And you say, I cannot do that. And to be honest, I, I want to. Do you want to? Do you want to love God with all your heart? Do you want to love God with all that you are all the time? We can't, we can't love God even as much as we want to love God. Let alone how much God wants us to love him. But this brings us to the five greatest words in James. James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. God gives greater grace. The cure for the problem of a wandering heart, the cure for the problem of a divided heart is the wisdom that God imparts from above and the grace of God. God's grace is sufficient to enable the people of God 
to, to meet the demands of God. And without his grace, there's no hope. There is no hope for you apart from the grace of God, but through his grace, God enables his people to practice authentic Christianity. It's the only way. I mean, listen, you would not be sitting here today as a believer in Jesus Christ apart from God's grace. It's his grace in Christ that gave you the new birth through the word of truth. But just as surely as you would not be part of God's family apart from his grace, you will never be able to practice authentic Christianity apart from God's grace. You can practice some sort of sham Christianity apart from God's grace, but it is hopeless to practice the kind of Christianity James calls you to apart from the grace of God. It is grace that has saved us. It's grace that's brought us this far. And it's grace that's going to take us home. Authentic Christianity is supernatural. The kinds of things James calls for are supernatural. Only produced through God's wisdom being poured out into our hearts and through the grace of God given to us. But if that's the case, if the real cure, I mean, if the cure is the grace of God, what do we need to know? We need to know how do I get it? How do you get the grace of God? And this is where James gives a quotation from the Old Testament. James 4, verse 6, he says, he quotes a text from Proverbs chapter 3. He says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to what kind of people? God gives grace to the humble. It's when we recognize our spiritual poverty, when we come before God with openness about our inadequacy, that God comes to the aid of his people with grace. God loves to help not people who help themselves. God loves to help people who recognize they cannot help themselves. Humility is the path to grace. I mean, if we look at the demands of God, if you look at the demands of God upon you this week and you think, I don't really care about those, that's a terrible sign. Your Christianity is suspect. But if you look at the demands of God this week and you think, I want to do that and I'm going to be okay on my own, you will be on your own. That is the sure path to resistance from God. Pride guarantees opposition from God, but God comes to the aid of the humble. But what does humility look like? If that's the one path to getting the one cure for the problem of my wandering heart, what does humility look like? And as Rocky shared with us last week, James 4, 7 to 10 lays it out. What humility is. You look at James 4, 7. Submit yourselves to God. Humility is, first of all, putting yourself under God in your rightful position. But you look through 4, 7 to 10, it's all about humility. Different aspects of humility ending, again, in James 4, 10, with humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And what is humility? Humility is characterized by willing submission to God, by recognizing you need him and drawing near to him, and by contrite repentance over your failure to love God as you ought. And James says things like, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and God will lift you up. God will give you grace. This brings us to our text for today, James 4.11. To 17. But as soon as we get there, it's kind of like we can feel as if 
James starts talking about something different. I mean, he starts talking about speech, which he's been talking about in every chapter of the book. And then James 4, 13 to 17, we've heard it some today. He starts talking about, you know, how you make plans. Think, okay, that's helpful instruction, but, you know, does that really fit with what came before it? And I'm just going to suggest up front that what may seem a little bit disconnected, like James is moving a little bit far away from his previous topics, I think are actually going to be united by the quotation from Proverbs chapter 3. That one quotation, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But you can see that for yourself, maybe in the text as as it unfolds. So look at James 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That first, that first line, don't speak evil against one another. Uh, some texts, like the Holman Christian, says don't criticize one another. NIV says don't slander one another. ESV says don't speak evil against one another. The command's fairly general about, you know, don't speak evil, don't speak negatively about other believers primarily. Doesn't mean you should speak evil about other people, but, uh, you know, specifically believers. This would probably... Uh, include things like not criticizing people, not putting others down to make yourself look good. But it probably shouldn't bring to your mind situations when you're speaking directly with a person and telling them unkind things about them. Probably more when you're talking to a third party. In other words, it's not as much as me, it's not so much me saying, you know, you can't sing very well as much as me telling someone else they don't have a very good voice, you know, the other person. So, Now, there's all kinds of ways that we do this, some openly, some very subtly. But in each case, we're tearing down rather than building up. And I just wanted to think through at least a couple of the kinds of initial statements we make when we're about to do this, and uh, rather than think of specific examples. Sometimes we have these sayings that we we give that kind of makes it sound like this is going to be okay, what I'm about to say, even though it's going to be negative about other people. Or these are just signs that, you know what, what I'm about to say, I should probably be cautious about that. I'm not saying every time you say these things that it's going to turn out to be evil or slander or, or uh, unjust criticism, but these kind of things can tend towards that. You know, sometimes we say things like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but what they just said didn't really make any sense to me. We could say things like, you know, question, when we ask questions like, did you see what that person did? Did you hear what she said to him? When you say something like that, probably what's going to come out next. You better be careful about what's going to come out next. We could look, at, look around and say, you know, it's, yeah, it's pretty obvious from their children, from the way that they act, that don't, 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 don't go. That's probably not going to turn out well. You know, if that sermon's any indication, so, but sometimes we're more, sl- more subtle we might say things like, you know, try to preface what we're going to say. I know, I know some, people might, some people might think this is unkind, but listen, I, so I, just, I just want to give the facts. I, I, I'm not going to give my opinions. I just want to say these are the facts that are observable to everybody who sees what's going on here. So we couch it, and like, this is just the truth. I mean, and it's okay, right? To, if this is the truth, it's okay to say bad things about people. Or we say, I want to be careful in how I say this, so I'll put it this way. If I were in their position... I probably wouldn't have done that. See, that just comes to me. It's just my opinion, right? But, but really, it's a subtle jab at someone else. We say things like, yeah, I know that if we ask them, because you probably didn't, 
you probably wouldn't talk to them about this. I know that if, if we asked them, they probably wouldn't say it this way or they probably would say this isn't why they're doing this. But these are ways, kinds of things that we say to try to make it not just like direct slander, direct criticism, we try to couch them. But in each of those cases, what's likely going to come out is some type of speech that's going to put down our brothers or our sisters. We can even do this perhaps unintentionally by speaking overly positively about our own friends, our own church, or our own views. The effect, if we talk so positively, so excitedly, so optimistically about everything about us, we can maybe even unintentionally disparage other people who aren't our closest friends, maybe disparage other churches and other believers who aren't part of our church, disparage other people who disagree over theological issues that have been debated for a long time. Now, a lot more could be said about that. But James' command is don't speak evil, don't slander, don't criticize. But I want to look at the addition. Look at the text again. He says, he opens up, he says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. But then he's, he's going to add something in the next phrase. He says, the one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So he adds this idea of judging a brother. Now, this is kind of tricky, right? Should you judge other believers? Should you judge anyone else? Is it right to judge people? One of the most familiar verses in all the Bible, right? Jesus' words, judge not so you won't be judged. Now, this is kind of a tricky topic. I don't, we can't take a ton of time on this, but I want to make a couple of things clear about this because James is clearly prohibiting some type of judgment of other believers in this text. But at the, on the other hand, Scripture doesn't prohibit all kinds of judgments that we make. Like Scripture does not prohibit exercising discernment. You know, so someone calls you on the phone, says, you know, give me your credit card number and you've won a trip to Hawaii. And you think, judge not, <laughs> that I won't be judged. Scripture does not prohibit exercising discernment. It does not prohibit recognizing false teachers or false teaching. Scripture also does not prohibit recognizing sin in the lives of other believers. In fact, if you see a brother or sister caught up in a trespass, there is something you're prohibited from doing, and that's doing nothing. You must get involved. If you look at the New Testament, or if you look at the end of the book of James, so if you take the end of the last verses of James, if any of us... Uh, is wandering from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. But Scripture does prohibit certain kinds of judging in terms of what we do with brothers and sisters. It clearly prohibits judging people based on their appearance or their external, external factors. Remember James 2 about two people come into the assembly, one's poor, one's rich, and we make value judgments about them. Scripture prohibits that kind of judgment. Another major prohibition in the New Testament 
Maybe the main one is that believers are not permitted to judge other brothers or sisters over choices they make that are not mandated by Scripture. I think if you look at Romans 14 to 15, that would be a major emphasis there. Perhaps these are the kinds of things that James is prohibiting. I'm not to judge my brothers or sisters on the basis of external factors that they probably can't change, really, such as their financial status, their ethnicity, their looks, their personality. Nor am I permitted to install myself as the judge of the conduct of other brothers and sisters in regard to things not mandated by Scripture. I should not be speaking evil about my brothers and sisters, slandering them, criticizing them, judging them. Now, this does not mean you can't talk with someone about something you disagree with that they're doing, or even about practices that they do that you don't do. It doesn't mean you can't talk to them. Iron sharpens iron, and we, of all people, ought to be able to have conversations with one another about disagreements because, Lord willing, we're receiving wisdom from above which is peaceable and teachable. It's approachable. That's part of the fruits of wisdom in James is that we're able to have conversations with one another, but I should not be talking to other people criticizing what you do. That's not mandated by Scripture. If you're sinning, I should be talking to you. If you're doing things that I feel uncomfortable with, I should feel free to come and talk with you in humility, and we should be able to have a conversation about it. But I am not your judge, and you are not the judge of your brothers and sisters. Paul himself in Romans 14 asks a very similar question in terms of making these kind of judgments. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Of Jesus, It is before his own master that believers will stand or fall and believers will be upheld by their master because the Lord is able to make them stand. So we go back to the text. When we look at this text, James 4.11, okay, we, we realize we don't have the right to criticize other believers to put ourselves in the place of the judge. But I want to focus on where James goes with this that doing that reveals something about you. Look at the text again, James 4.11. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. If I'm unkind to my brother, my speech, if I judge him, I'm no longer a doer of the law. In other words, I'm no longer in a place of submission to God and what he's told me. Which in James is focused specifically, when you talk about law, on the law to love your neighbor as yourself. That's like the the main one in James. The king's command to love your neighbor as yourself. When you're speaking evil about your neighbor, you're no longer in the place of submission to what the king told you. In fact, you are putting yourself in the place of judge, in the place of lawgiver. Now look at the text in verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. There's only one lawgiver and judge. And guess what? It's not me. And it's not you. The only lawgiver and judge is God, the one who's able to save and to destroy. 
you will not ultimately give account to me for what you do, nor I to you. We will all stand before God. And that God before whom we will stand is able to save us or to destroy us. Are you ready to stand before that kind of king? Do you want to give an account of that kind of king for the way that you treat his laws to love your neighbor as yourself? We'll come back to that later. But James concludes with a cutting question. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to try to take his place? Who am I to usurp the place of God? Attempts to usurp God's place have been happening for a long time. You can look back in the garden. The church is one place it ought not to be happening. So in the end, what's this text about, James 4, 11 to 12? It's about how we speak about other brothers and sisters, how we judge them and so forth. But what's it about? Ultimately, it's about what doing that reveals about us. And it reveals when I speak against my brother and I put myself over my sister in judgment on her conduct that's not mandated by Scripture, I am putting myself in whose place? I've taken the place of God. Rather than being in, what is the first part of humility in James 4, 7? Submit to God. I'm putting myself in the place of God, and what would you say that is? That's a really proud thing to do. I think that James 4, 11 to 12 is an illustration of what a proud person looks like. The kind of person who gets no grace. A proud person is the kind of person who does not submit to God, but rather usurps God's role by putting himself or herself above the law of the king. And that's revealed in the way that we talk about each other. Being a person who speaks evil against the family of God or attempts to sit in judgment over other believers is a bad sign. It's a sign of pride, and it is a sign that you will get no grace because you will get opposition from God. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the kind of people who say, whatever you say, God, that is what I will do. If you tell me to love my neighbor... If you tell me to speak the right way about my neighbor, I will do it. Brothers and sisters, we need grace. The only path to grace is through humility. Pride guarantees opposition from God, and one sign of pride is the way that we talk about our brothers and sisters in this church. Now we move to James 4.13. And again, it seems like there's a shift in topic, right? And there is a shift in topic in one way, But I want you to pay attention to where James goes with this discussion in James 4.13 and following. It says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist 
that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James calls out the readers, perhaps some of the readers. You know, I think many of the readers are probably poor. I think that fits the setting of the book. Some of them maybe have a little bit more, are able to travel around, try to make money, maybe calls them out directly. But what he says about plans has application to everyone for sure in the church. Now look at the statement. It says, come now you who say, and he lays out what they say or what they might say. Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What's wrong with that statement? Anything wrong with that statement? You look at it, the problem is obviously the lack of clarity about which town to go to. You see that? They just say, I'm going to go to such and such a town. Our five-year plans need to be specific to be successful. That is not the problem. Is the problem that the person made plans? That's not a problem. Is the problem that the plans for today or tomorrow? Or tomorrow. Be specific. Say tomorrow. Now, this is not the problem. Is it that they want to spend a year there? That's too decisive. They should have said nine to 15 months. You know, we need flexibility. But is the problem that they want to make a profit? You might think that. But I don't think that's really the problem. I, in fact, I don't know that there's anything in that statement that is a problem that's in the statement. What's the problem? So what's not in the statement? What's not in the statement? Like in one word. God, right? God is not in the statement. That's what, all of that other stuff, you could maybe say that, but God's not in the statement. God's not in the plans. God's not in the goals. This kind of planning, a kind that does not factor God in, is for one thing, it's worldly. That's what worldliness often is, is just functioning normally without acknowledgement of God. In fact, it may look just like your life as a Christian. They might do the same things in many cases, but God's not consciously in the picture. It's just an example maybe of worldliness, but that's not really the, the primary thing that James is going to emphasize about this. And we'll, we'll get there. But I want to look at what he says in verse 14. He kind of gives this critique about making plans like this, about you know, what we're going to do next year or for the next year. He says, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. He confronts them really with a text from Proverbs or an allusion maybe to a text in Proverbs. <clears throat> maybe you have memorized this verse in Proverbs 27 verse 1. It says, don't boast about tomorrow. Why? Because you don't know what a day will bring forth. To think that I would be so bold as to say that I'm going to do this or that here or there for this amount of time so that I can get this. To think that I would be so bold to think I could say that and have confidence it's going to happen. That I have the ability to make that happen. It's a bad, bad sign. What's that a sign of? James will get there. But right now he says, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring because what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. I don't know. I don't know what a year's going to bring. What's my life? It's just a vapor. You'll get the, you'll get the picture every, every morning probably for the next couple of months here. <laughs> you know, a month or two, you go outside, you breathe, you see the puff of air, there it's gone. That's your life. That's what we are. You remember Psalm 90 from the scripture reading this morning? 
Our lives are fleeting. Some of us may live to be 25. Some may live to be 40. Some of us may live to be 80. But what is that? What's 80 years? It's a vapor. We're blessed at our church to have a wide variety of, of ages, people who are kids who are following Christ, people who have been following Christ for 50-plus years. Go talk with one of our members who's 75 or 80. Ask them about their lives. You think they would say, life is so long. I would think it'd probably be more likely they'd say, these 80 years have gone so fast. Life is fleeting. We don't have control over it. And look at the news this afternoon. There are 10 articles listed on the front page of a news site. I wouldn't be surprised if four or five of them were about people dying unexpectedly. Whether by snow, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, old age, or various accidents. Still, however, even believers can make plans as if we have some control over our lives, as if we have some power to make things happen. Look at what James says, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. James' corrective isn't really a corrective on the whole statement, but on that one thing that was left out, the omission of God and his will. What a person should say is if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Only God knows. And anything I plan to do or hope to do is only if he allows in everything I do. I have to recognize my plans are just that. They're just my plans. And I've got no ability to make sure that they happen. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In everything I do, I need to submit my life, my goals, my dreams, my family, our plans consciously to the will of the Lord. It's only if he allows that I will be able to do anything. Now, does this mean we should say Lord willing after every sentence? Now, I think, I think we could, maybe. I don't know if it would be wrong. I'm not sure James is so concerned about how often we say the words, although it can be helpful to remind yourself sometimes. He's concerned about the condition of the heart. Is your heart in submission to God? In regard to all that we plan or hope to do, is there a conscious recognition of his sovereignty over my life? If he wills, I will do this or I will do that. But look at what James says in 4.16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Do you see it now? This, is this passage just about how we make plans? No. This text reveals the heart of the problem that James is addressing. If we plan out our lives as if we have control over them, fail to factor God into the equation, what are we doing? What are we evidencing? This is a sign of what kind of heart? A proud heart. And it is sinful. All such boasting is evil. James 4, 11 to 16 deals with two signs of a proud heart. How do you know if you're proud? There are many things that reveal it. But James points out two. Proud people speak against other believers. They judge other believers, put themselves in the place of judge, in the place of God. And proud people make their plans 
as if they actually have the power to make them happen. They don't acknowledge that their lives are fleeting, that God's sovereign, and that all that we do will only be if the Lord wills. Now look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James concludes the main body of the letter with this statement. If we know what's right and we don't respond and do it, it's sin. Immediately this is applicable to the way that you talk about brothers and sisters and to the way that you make plans. But really it probably summarizes the content of the first four chapters. James has laid out what God's will is for you, and if you don't respond to it, you're sinning. If we've been hearing the word these last several weeks, and God's been speaking to you about what to do, and you don't do it, you're sinning. Sin isn't just doing what God told you not to do. We, that, that is sinful. You know, if God says don't steal and you steal, you're sinning. But sin, it's just as much a sin to fail to do what God told you to do. So just think back to James. I mean, if James spends 13 verses in James chapter 2 talking about showing compassion, not being partial towards a rich person over a poor person, showing compassion to the needy. If you see a brother or sister who's in need and you have the opportunity to help them and you do nothing, that's a problem. Right? And if, if God works in your life to bring things to your mind that you ought to do and you don't do them, it's just as much a sin as if he told you don't do that and you did it. This is the way that James brings the body of the letter to a close. And now as, as we bring that text to a close, I want us to just, just reflect a little bit as we close our service today. What are we to do? What are we to do if we've recognized we've sinned? That we have been proud in the way that we talked about a brother or sister this week? Or maybe you've been proud or I've been proud about the way we've thought about the next year of our lives. I would just give you James' words. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and God will lift you up. There's forgiveness, grace available for you through humble repentance. It's all you need to do. We ought to take our sins seriously. We know as Christians there's only one lawgiver and judge and when we offend him, we ought to take it seriously. But do you know what else we know? We know that the judge is also our savior. God is for us. He's always for us. He's on our side and he loves us. He's the kind of king who says in James, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. 
He's the kind of God who, because of Jesus, says, confess your sin, and you'll find mercy every time. This is our God. For others here today, maybe you've been here for a long time, maybe this is the first time you've been here. It's possible that your own pride may have been exposed today. Perhaps you've been thinking back to how you talk about other people, the kinds of things that you post about other people, or about how you've been thinking about your life, your plans, your goals, what you're going to do. Maybe your pride has been exposed. Perhaps you're thinking about that one statement earlier in the text, that there is a lawgiver, there's only one, and he's able to save, and he's able to destroy. Maybe you're thinking of the uncertainty of your life. Tomorrow's not guaranteed, and after death comes the judgment. We'll all stand before God, the God who's able to save us or to destroy us. Are you uneasy? Are you uncertain how you'd ever be able to stand at the judgment? Listen, every true Christian has been there. If you're feeling uncertain, you're feeling uneasy, thinking I have to stand before the judgment and I've been so, so proud. And he's able to destroy me. Maybe you don't feel rest. We all have been there. Every believer. But remember this. God is not only the one who's able to destroy, he's the one who's able to save. The God who judges sinners is also the God who loves sinners, who sent his, wor- his son into the world to save sinners, to save every person who admits his or her rebellion against the king and who comes in humility to Jesus, the one who died for us and who has been raised and who's seated at the right hand of God. You could call out to him today and say, Oh, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you could go to your home justified. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, and you'll find that Jesus stands ready and eager to save. You see, in the end, for everyone here, whether you know Jesus or whether you don't, myself included, James' call to us is really the same in the sense that it's just a call to humility, to turn from the path of pride, the path that guarantees you resistance from God. Today's call is to humble dependence on God for the path ahead and to humble repentance from the failures behind us. Do you need God's grace this week? Do you need it? There's only one path to grace. It is the path of humility. But how blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, 
thank you for giving us these moments. We acknowledge that we don't know if we'll have another hour. Thank you for sustaining us, for helping us to make it here so we could hear these words. I thank you for giving us another opportunity to humble ourselves before you. I thank you for giving people here today another opportunity to hear the gospel. Lord, we confess that we are so often filled with pride. We struggle with pride every day. It comes out in the way that we talk. It comes out in the way that we plan. Lord, we repent. We ask for mercy. We pray, Lord, that you might comfort us who mourn. That you would lift us up. Lord, I pray for those who are so uneasy about their destiny, about standing before you. Lord, we all tremble when we think of the judgment. But yet for some, they might be fearful that they will be destroyed. Lord, I pray that they would look to you and find mercy in Jesus today. Lord, give us strength this week. Teach us to number our days and to obey because we cannot do this apart from your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.